And now, the Rathband Tapes. Episode 3, Manhunt. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is. Welcome to the Rathband Tapes. I'm Tony Horn in Lancashire, England, ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband. In South Australia, his twin, Darren. We're revisiting David's whole story for what I believe is the first time. And by that, I will introduce you to conversations David and I shared with nobody in the writing of his book. Darren, the closest person to his brother, has never heard these tapes. Some of this is not easy and we won't cover everything. Some bits we will visit briefly and return to later. But amongst all the noise, David is in his own words. So in previous episodes, we've looked at the events leading up to David's shooting. And that moment itself, whilst, of course, seeing it through Darren's eyes, and that's a phrase that all of us have a chilling recognition of because we don't like to see things through our eyes because of what happened to David. Even though he was very humorous about the language of what happened to him. We're at the 6th of July, 2010. David is shot on the 4th. Darren, you've arrived in Newcastle and you enter Ward 47 and you say to David, can we buy a... (laughs) I'm trying to to remember. Do you know what? My first recollection of getting off that plane was... um, I've got to go back a bit, Tony. It's... um, the, just before coming to land, Angie went up to one of the air hostess, hostesses and explained who we were. And thankfully, the air hostess with British Airways actually knew the story. She knew what had obviously happened, looked at me, smiled in acknowledgement. And I, at that time, I didn't know what Angie was doing. Angie had asked if we could go into up to the front of the plane to get off first. And she said, yeah, of course you can. So we got we got moved up to the front of the plane, in, so we could get off first. We get off the plane into Newcastle, and uh, it's one of the probably third time I've ever been up into the northeast. It was cold. I certainly didn't want to be there. And we were met by two family liaison officers. I think it was Chris Chris Clark and Clark. Alison Brown. Yeah. Um, Alison, yeah. That relationship. Uh, Although their support and that uh, that communication, uh, that didn't last too long with those two. Then we go to the hospital. So, Alison Brown is a significant character towards the end of David's life in particular. We'll come to that ahead. I think the conversation on the plane is quite important because, let's be clear... Angie, David's partner, Angie, Darren's partner, (laughs) you see, you see, um, is not saying 
don't you know who I am? She actually, nor does Darren, know what the people on the plane do really know because they've been traveling all this time. And getting off that plane after such a long journey and the prospect of meeting the press or who knows what in a place you don't really know, I think is a daunting one. The reaction of the British Airways hostess there, I think encapsulates the enormous amount of compassion, sympathy, distress that this induced in so many people. David used to talk to me about the kindness of strangers. Now, many of those people came into his life and didn't stay the course, but he certainly had all the moral high ground that there was and was warmly fettered by people he never knew. Darren enters Ward 47 and says, can we buy a... Tony, I'm trying to remember what I said. Can we buy a fan? So there's armed guards opposite Wait, Tony, where can David I just stop? I, I, complete, I can't remember that at all. It was very warm and humid. It was the plastics ward, and they've got to keep the skin moist. Uh, David found it very, very uncomfortable. I mention that because in a downbeat story like this, there's natural humour, there's black humour, and there's some light-hearted tidbits, I suppose. I think I reference it because it tells me that on Tuesday the 6th of July, you're in Newcastle. Yeah. And on the 4th of July, you're in Adelaide. So when you land, you have to deal with, wow, your brother, even though it's not been told to him, will never see again. You have to deal with your advanced thoughts of the rest of your brother's life. You also have to piece together, because it is now public and wasn't really until David was shot, the very late Chris Brown. Yeah, uh, and you know what? That was certainly a consideration that I'm sure Northumbria Police may have or should have put some more onus onto. Um, you know what? Along the way, there's you say windows of opportunity. If, if we are to, I think if we were to take away that litigation, that monetary value of fault, we look at the way Chris Brown was murdered. He wasn't just shot. He was outside the house. Moat, by all accounts, was listening to a conversation from under the front window, taking the mickey out of it. Something that has obviously then happened. Chris, from my information, Chris Brown came out of the house. I would probably suggest um, he's seen Moat armed with a weapon. Chris Brown was a uh, highly uh, trained martial arts expert and I think he probably came out that house trying to or would have gone hands on with him uh, he didn't get that opportunity I think what probably happened he noticed he was armed for I'm in trouble and from what I've been told he went past moat he was then shot in the legs to stop him going any further then shot again and then the, the, the final shot Tony was moat 
put his foot on the back of Chris Brown's head and shot him. That was the final shot that finished him off. Now, if Northam, and this is the window of opportunity, he was assassinated, the premeditated and the callous way that he was murdered, if that didn't tell the command structure in Northumbria Police, this was a genuine, credible threat to somebody else, then I don't know what would have been. That's a really interesting point because police forces have... There's a gold command, I think, and they have serious incident procedures, I believe. It strikes me that this becomes a serious incident when your brother is shot. Before David was shot, that, that there would be a structure in place to designate that as Operation um, a, a Gold, Gold Cup or something, it would have been assigned a significant incident. There would have been a gold commander who took control of that incident and then made those crucial decisions. Um, now, that would have started when Chris Brown was murdered. So they've already started that process. So they've already started thinking about firearms, officers being dispatched, have they got, if they've got the right to arm, self-arm, where are they are going to be located? The risk to public, the risk to victims. Now, she was taken to hospital, put into protective custody. She was taken to hospital with injuries, arm protection. Okay? That incident room is still running. They are collating all those decisions. When David gets shot, that is part and parcel of that, surely that same process. I'll tell you what it looks like to me, and if Northumbria Police wish to say that's unfair, so be it. We're in a serious incident, ongoing as you say. It feels all a bit sleepy on the Saturday when David wanders into work, avoiding his daughter's birthday party, having played golf in the morning, unaware, unaware... I struggle to understand how a policeman can go into a shift unaware that the rarity of a murder has happened 10, 15 miles from him. And there's a disconnect here between the severity of the assassination of Chris Brown and the lack of pace with which Moat's call to the control room is responded to. I don't think that's unfair. I'm not being critical. I understand people are under pressure. I understand we've got hindsight. But you've got a serious incident and you've got a serious incident procedure, some of which you've alluded to. Sam Stobart is taken to hospital we believe, under armed guard when she gets there. And then what? Has it all gone quiet? And we will hear in a future episode the moment that the call handler went to David's house and confided in what happened in the control room. This is tough stuff. It's really tough stuff. And it's really tough 
on the guy that took the call who felt the need to go and tell David in person. We'll come to that. For the North East and Northumbria Police represent you and your community. And if if they had done that, if one of your family members had been shot and so, sort of displayed that empathy, uh, sorry, apathy, in regards to locating and arresting this, they knew who he was. Let's face it, he just got out of prison. They'd had the inf- information saying he was going to come out and kill and settle school. So it's not like um, all of a sudden they've had, they've had this un, unorganised, non-premeditated incident. They, their, their intel would have said, he's connected, it's him, right. So they now put this opera, this incident room in action and there will be an inspector, the goal commander and a couple of civilian call takers, radio operators who are responsible for that incident. They're, they're making decisions. They obviously aren't making uh, the, all the decisions they should have done because he's still he's still at large, he's still at risk. And you know what? Even if I wasn't a police officer, my brother got shot under their watch. And people will look at me, Tony, and, and, and I've, I've, like everybody else, you get the emails and the, the memes. I've had it all. Um, all I've ever wanted to do was do the right thing by my brother. And Northumbria Police should have done that. And I thought... Like I said, to if it wasn't about the pound in litigation, I think the answer would have been different. Yes, we could have and should have. So we will discuss that um, ahead. There is a line in the book. Sue Sims, the chief of police at this time, there's a line in the book, David, you must sue me. Um, my understanding is that Sue was denied saying that but whether or not she did or she didn't is actually irrelevant because as Darren has outlined there we have got a serious incident and let's remove David from this situation David could have been a member of the public or members of the public. Moat is floating around on a Saturday night. Newcastle's one of the best places in the world to be on a Saturday night. Somebody who, and I credit the tiniest amount of intelligence to Moat here, somebody who's that calculated and planned, as we've seen, that's where my credit ends and you would think knows the end game it's difficult to say before events in Rothbury unraveled but in the cold light of day there can be no way out for moat and when you are in that mindset that you've already decided I'm hunting cops and you've already told somebody inside Durham prison that you're going to hurt your ex-girlfriend It's kind of one-way traffic to me. And David could have been 50 people spilling out onto the pavements of the quayside in Newcastle. So let's just remove David from the situation. So we have a serious incident. We have a duty of care. 
We have a government on the loose that we know. And I think this point is accentuated when we get to Rothbury, a very tiny, compact place. David took those bullets and, as he said in the previous episode, probably prevented more deaths. And if 50 people have been slain on the quayside of Newcastle, I know it's ifs and hindsight, my goodness me, I think Northumbria police would have been paying out. Now, you can agree or disagree with that, but the reality is this. They knew when he was in prison that he was a threat. He came out, assassinated somebody. Therefore, the threat is genuine and still live. Therefore, when you receive a phone call saying, I'm hunting cops, and you do not pass that on without being the judge, you have simply failed in your duty of care. I think even the most vocal Northumbria police administrators can't argue with that. And Darren, as we move to Rothbury, I mean, this passage, a lot of which we learned through the trial, has some dark moments and some very dark light moments. So you arrive in Newcastle on the 6th of July. Moat's already been in Rothbury in Northumberland a day and a half. Camping. The threat that he potentially posed to a sleepy little place like Rothbury is colossal. And for all the joking, and I can remember the Friday night in which Moat's life ended. It's live TV. People spilling out of pubs. Unwanted people turning up that we will not give airtime to. It's incredible that worse didn't happen. What what is quite unbelievable, Tony, is if you if you go back and watch how it developed. Obviously, there was a lot of ridicule placed on Sue Sims' door the way she looked, that she was unprofessional, and I think she is the figurehead or was the figurehead of Northumbria Fleet. Unfortunately, personal uh, abuse and focused on her appearance had very little impact on. What I would say is. Her subordinates, who were responsible for the running of this incident and the whole incident, um, should look at what they did. And rather than turn around and say, we did everything and we did it right, it would have been nice for them to reflect and say, yeah, we could have done something better. Unfortunately, that was never going to happen. Sue Sim must have said to David, sue me. When I had a conversation with her in regards to other things, in regards to David's funeral, she actually told me that that's what she'd told David. I wasn't there with that conversation, but um, obviously we had a conversation about funeral costs. And I think, that if you remember, uh, right, when the accomplices went to court, I actually went to that hearing. I wanted to go on 
present for David Bihar. I came outside with Susan, and there's that capture where I say Susan is guaranteed David will be, remain police or there's a job for David in the police. I made a, I, I had a conversation with her to get that comment from her so I could verbally say that on the steps of that court. I did that. I, I manufactured that conversation for the benefit of my group to make sure they wouldn't just push him out of his job. And but let, let me just explain that. That's the only one of my prime objectives, Tony, when I got to England, when I saw David, and when I knew that he needed help, my role of baby brother took over, and I wanted to help and be his brother. And I'm, I, that's all I ever wanted to do with our baby. And she, she did say, I told him to sue me, irrespective of what she said in court. You know what? She, she's got to carry that. David knew her. David had been in the fleet. David took her out on patrol. And there you go. Do you know what? What what did it do for him? She knew he would say it how he was. And that's exactly what he did. There's a lot there from Darren. Uh, a few things that I know. David had a very high opinion of Sue Sim, who was routinely mocked at the time. There were also a lot of issues within Northumbria Police. And what I mean by that is that Sue Sim is not from the area and was, I think, acting or deputy chief. Yeah. I think acting. Politics were at play. There were a lot of people who didn't want her to get the top job. I've got David talking about this on tape. There was some bad history, some negative... There was some negative press about some incidents involving Northumbria police, involving sexual conduct, and uh, an officer who killed a young lady, excessive speeds in a 30. It wasn't a great time for Northumbria police. The irony is that post all of this, David could have been a shining light, visiting schools and being a real public face for Northumbria police. The reality is that Northumbria police were thrust into a spotlight that was tough. It was tough. At the time, I was on the radio in the northeast and critical. Critical. I'm also mindful of the fact that when the police tell you something at a press conference, they're probably 24, 48 hours ahead of where the game is. And there's a reason that they do that at a press conference. They're talking to the media to sell a message. They're also sending messages to Moat. There's nothing about a police press conference that doesn't have some sort of agenda. One of the people that was thrust into this spotlight was Neil Adamson. I don't know Neil. At the time, I felt he made a really big mistake. Now I understand why he said it. There's a phrase, the net is closing. And I think this was said about midweek. Now, what we also have to remember is that whilst David has pieced together a lot of his story through evidence that he heard in court, we've heard how he learned about the route that the accomplices took, the modifying of a shotgun. In the week that he was in Rothbury, and conscious... But in between morphine and 
Not so much life-saving operations, but rebuilding operations. We alluded to the fact that Darren walked in on the plastics ward. David was being given information from the chief of police and from other people. He also had Sky News on in the background on the telly. So there we've got this sort of disjointed nature of the information distribution. So he's hearing it from the horse's mouth. He's also hearing what they're reporting. Neil Adamson used the phrase, the net is closing. I discussed this with David because it gave people hope that this was over. I felt by the end of that week, the words looked ridiculous because there was no conclusion coming. I'm mindful that obviously... Northumbria police were 48 hours ahead of the story. Here's Neil Adamson and David on Neil Adamson. So by saying that, they knew that he had got access to telephones and they also knew that other people were feeding him information off the telly. So I, my personal belief is that's why they said it, was to make him move from where he was. One of the things that David told me was, and I don't know if he's being dramatic here, but their arrival in Rothbury, David said to me they only knew about because, well, have a listen, okay? The only reason they knew he was in Rothbury was because an old biddy phoned in who'd seen it. This massive operation that's got Northumbria police at the top of their game, um, not only at the top of their game, they're now calling in specialist search agents that are going to work on behalf of Northumbria Police. Ray Mears, not only Ray Mears, he's going to come in and help them find this individual that's murdered one person, seriously injured two others, but he's going to find them. That obviously doesn't work. And then you see a footage of Rothbury invaded by these police officers. They don't even know what they're looking for. They're walking around the street like they're looking for a shoplift. It's very hard now, and the, the public are much more savvy than they ever were, but in a place where incidents like this are so rare, it's very difficult to accept the idea that ANPR, Vehicle Recognition System, it's very difficult to believe that ANPR... Mobile phone coverage, which ultimately did play a massive part in the nailing of the accomplices. CCTV couldn't find very quickly where these people were. Now, maybe they did, but David told me that an old biddy, that's his words, called it in. The Ray Mears moment is extraordinary because to capture the fever of the nation, we have Rolling News live from Northumberland. We have television crews in helicopters. We have Kay Burley on Sky News interviewing people. One interview I saw 
was with, I think he was from the cadets. And he said something like, oh, yeah, crikey, if there's anywhere you want to hide, it's up there in those hills. And I thought, wow, we're giving airtime now. Advice on how to flee justice. And yes, the Ray Mears thing, survival expert. There's all sorts of comedy around this. You know, there's talk that Ray Mears was shipped in wearing a sergeant's uniform. You know, um, you've got to give me status. I've often mused to myself about the conversation between Northumbria Police and Ray Mears' agent. But come on. As a police officer, you do so much training. Let's leave a pause while you answer this. But in the cold light of day, do you know what you're doing and making the best decision if you put in the call for Ray Mears to come and find Ralmo? And the massive plus to that comment is... Ray Mears is not a trained gunman, as far as I know. And as we know, the scenario ended in a gun-on-gun scenario. David knew that Ray Mears was there. They said that they'd seen him. One of the police officers said that they'd seen him. And obviously realised he'd been snuck in without anybody knowing. But he, he, it showed you on the telly them all getting off a bus. And he was a sergeant, but it was Ray Mears. So, I mean, I knew that they were using other people, and then obviously, subsequently, I found out that they spoke to a friend of mine's brother, who was an ex-Royal Marine commando, who lived in Rothbury all his life, and they were asking him where all the caves were and all that sort of stuff. But that was in the middle of the week, um, sort of Wednesday, like Tuesday, Wednesday, because uh, he was away on holiday and they rang him. So he gave him information about where all the caves and that were. There's all of these people, if he's getting the information from, like, associates or friends or... he's got. I mean, the, the, the overriding thing was that Awan had gone and tried to buy him a television. They wanted a portable television. You know, like one of these little three-inch things. He'd been sent to shop to get specifically um, a television... So I can see Darren in vision here. Darren, yeah, you're shaking your Darren, head. It, it's just unimaginable how, uh, and, I, and I'm I don't know Moat from a, a bar of soap, and I certainly didn't want to know him, I don't want to know him. He, he doesn't strike me as highly educated, highly skilled. Let's face it, he wasn't even a good scrap man. He got busted for that. Then he goes uh, to prison. He has demonstrated or certainly helped uh, Northumbria police show how incompetent they are trying to locate and arrest the serious offender. It, it's just unbelievable. They Not only do they have Ray Mears, they have RAF tornadoes flying across <laughs> the, the terrain. Uh, yeah, well, they, do you know what? The only thing they probably didn't have was Jumbo the Elephant um, because... 
that would have made it would have been that would have been the final picture to this circus. That, just go back to the fact, Tony. You've got people. You've got officers walking round Rothby, right? Not firearms trained. This bloke's this this bloke's been seen. He, a credible person has said, "I've seen this this male that you're after. He's here in Rothbury. So they obviously think that's credible because they all sort of arrive at Rothbury. They're walking around unarmed. He's still at large. <laughs> it's just it's just farcical. And, ju- and let me just tell you as well. At this time, I'm still in hospital with my brother, right? knowing that he's lost his sight. He doesn't know any of this. He still thinks. He's got an iPad on. He's been told one eye is unsavable, that the other eye they think they can do something with. He still thinks he's got some sight. I'm listening to the radio, because David's got arm protection. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. We strike up a good relationship with, I think he had four firearms officers. I'd go and stand by them and they'd turn the radio up so I could hear what was going on. I could hear this all firsthand. And, like you, you touched on, yeah, they were um, disclosing to David what was going on as well. And, of course, when you say iPad there, you mean iPad. You don't mean the Apple generation. Um, Just (laughs) worth pointing out, I think. And, you know, what's really hard about the Seven Nights in Rothbury, much of which came out in the trial, and, yeah, there's, there's comedy, you know, Moat sending off his accomplices to to town to buy a tent. Them keeping receipts, buying chip, chicken wraps in sub in Subway. We'll come to that. But it buries the initial stages of David's recovery, and I said that we would talk about that trauma mentally and physically. We will talk about what it means to be blind. And believe me, when we get there, you will feel that pain. The story is still live and unfolding. You think about it now. How dangerous is that a situation? Gunman, two accomplices on the loose in a place so cut off, so remote, it would take a serious police force, serious time to get there. On the telly, live coverage. I understand rolling news. I've worked in the media for a long time, but it's dangerous. I can remember seeing the images that you talked about, the planes flying over. I saw those witnesses helping if you like, or encouraging Moat on the telly, saying, oh, yeah, it's a good place to hide, really good place. And you've got a town, probably an elderly population, very sleepy. It's a disaster waiting to happen. The fact that it lasted a week, now I'm only reflecting for the first time, is horrifying, is frightening. There were 
moments along the way. They found a phone concealed in a black bin liner at, at a bus stop or a, a lamppost in the village which he was using, which was a really good find, apparently. But that was away from the campsite, so obviously they'd walk away and go and use the phone, put it back in its black bin liner and stash it down by a, a post. So, Darren, you know as an officer... You'll have heard this phrase many times. Hiding in plain sight. Don't they say it's something about if you want to find a nutter, look at the staff at an asylum? So, uh, it's, it's just, you know what? And I, what I don't want people to think, Tony, it's quite easy for, for them to do that. That I'm bitter, it's my brother, Northumbria Police could have done better. Um, do you know what? If Northumbria Police had done a good job, and David had died, I'd be the first person to say Northumbria Police did the right thing. And you know what? I've been in the job long enough. I've been criticised. Um, management are quick enough to criticise rank and file. They don't like it when it's put back on them. So the easiest thing is to all get all stand together. We did it right. We did it right. Clearly they didn't do it right because David got shot. And if you don't blame them for the shooting... Let's, and I'm sure we're going to go on to it. Look at the aftermath. David's been shot. He's been left blind. He's significantly impacted by what's happened in his life. It doesn't take a psychologist or a professor of mental health to work out David needs support for the long term. That never happened. Yet David may have said, I don't want it, I'm fine. He clearly wasn't okay and fine. And they neglected that and then blamed the fact that the welfare of the welfare officer um, didn't think it was appropriate. Story down the track, Danny, but what the point is, something could have done differently. Something could have been done differently, and the outcome may have been different. You know what? If David had stayed at home with the kids, he wouldn't have got shot. Somebody else would have. If the bloke went to work rather than get uh, ringing sick, maybe he would have took the first bullet. David would have drove off before the second. It's all ifs and buts. The outcome's the same, mate. In August 2009, uh, David and Kath have been away. Ash, David's son, rang him up in the middle of the night to say his car had been blown up. Now, I don't recall all the details of that, but... I know one thing that David was always wary of is that sometimes you can live too close to the people who can, you know, who you can end up sending down. The Northeast is a very small place, and that served as a reminder. When David is beginning his recovery and you're arriving bedside, on that very day, the 6th of July, David told, I'll spare the name, but a very senior figure in Northumbria Police, that he wanted armed guards outside of the house in Blythe to protect Kath, Ash and Mia. If I can't protect my family, I want you to protect my family. The next day, on the 7th of July, he 
shouted to his family liaison officer to get him the chief because there weren't any armed guards outside the house and this was causing an immense amount of stress also at this period david had begun to have really bad hallucinations in his broken sleep And they were about moat. They were pirate-like figures coming to his head, playing with his mind. And his mind, of course, is being severely tested, morphine-laced. But in between those moments, his family are at his heart. And he felt very, very... Um, betrayed by the fact that there weren't a police protection outside his house. I believe Sue Sim, the chief, was on side. She was heard to say on the phone, somebody has lied to me because I think she'd been given that guarantee. There were so many police involved in this manhunt and investigation um, I think he asked for a simple yeah, thing re- there and he didn't get it. I, I recall that. You were, I recall that, Tony. Yeah, you were yeah. living in the hospital yeah. at that point, I basically. Never, I never left. Anyway. Once I got there, I stayed there for a week. I didn't even go. I think it was a, It was probably a week before I went out and had a shower. Um, I remember David speaking to, um, I think it might have been, it might have been Alice. It was one of the family liaison's officers. And he, he said, you, you better get somebody on my, to, to protect my family, because if you don't, I'm leave, I'll, I will walk out of this hospital. He was, and he was visibly distressed. And, and what you've got to remember is he can hear, because he's got the TV on, he can hear that, and he can also hear what's going on the radio. So he was, and he was assured that that would happen. Um, and then when he was told that all he got was a passive patrol, um, he went, he went off it and, and demanded to speak to Susan. What you got to remember is, this is a police officer that's been shot on duty. The nation's going to, it's going to be all over the place, right? High profile. He asked for that. And he, he's, he's lied to because it fits in with what management want him to know. Okay? The passive patrol, you get that when you go on holiday and you tell them your house is going to be empty for two weeks. So they didn't even afford him that tone. And look, we can all get, we can always, like you said earlier, criticise Northumbria. But let's let's make sure that the listeners, if there are any to this podcast, understand. As a police officer, you you don't get treated any special. You don't get any special treatment from the people who are at the top of your management structure. I can, I can guarantee you. You drop in the shit, you get dealt with worse than anybody else in in public and when you ask for something you you invariably get little back in return i believe that sue sim was honorable and true to her word and that she had made a commitment to david and was aggrieved to find out that 
it hadn't yeah, been. Yeah, do you know what, Tony? Out. I think you're probably right. Um, because, I think, like you said, David had a real good. He, for a chief constable, she was approachable. And David wouldn't let anybody say a bad word about her. Um, but, unfortunately, when you're a chief constable and you have people underneath you who have also got egos and want to take control, um, messages don't always get passed up. And I can, I can tell you that, that for, we, we had it, Tony, um, in the, in the hotel. We, we were told to get out of the hotel after day three because the four Northumbria police couldn't afford the hotel bill. So <laughs> we were asked to leave the hotel. The level of information that David is receiving whilst recovering does range from indiscreet knowledge, such as Ray Mears is there. He often said to Kath, you couldn't make it up. But he was also aware on the Wednesday of that week about Moat having changed his Facebook status to read, just got out of jail, I've lost everything, watch and see what happens. Again, a reminder of the extreme stress, trauma that David is under. He's lost his eyesight, but at this point, as we'll discover soon, he still holds some hope that there can be a miracle. He often talked to me about his head being a metallic drum and how that hollowing echo in it was tormenting him. I've never really suffered from migraines, but I would imagine it is that times a million. At the same time, whilst coming to terms with what's happened to him, he's piecing together information and misinformation. And, of course, concerned for his family. Now, Darren, one thing that I need to say here that I know is absolutely fair. Of all the criticism of Northumbria police, and I understand the media, they made a terrible mistake. Now... Whether it's Neil Adamson saying early in the week the net is closing and by the end of the week it hadn't appeared to have closed, although ultimately it did on that Friday night. I know that Sue... I'm guessing that Sue believes she was doing the right thing by walking the streets, engaging with people. Fair play. She placed herself at the centre of the the crime and was visible so that people felt safe unfortunately naivety on Northumbria's police because they held a an open meeting in Rothbury Village Hall possibly the Thursday night and it was live on the telly I mean that's how big this was I watched it, disbelief. The backdrop to this is that earlier in the week, Northumbria police had warned journalists that Moat had said 
and they'd found they'd found a letter from Moat that Moat had said that for every wrong information about him, he would kill somebody. I was a columnist for the Newcastle Evening Chronicle at that time, and I wrote a column that day, and I was close to deadline. And I got this message that we can't write anything. So I wrote a very bland column at haste to meet the print deadline about a car park in Newcastle. I mention this right now in that the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, you can see it online, have written a piece how their journalists helped in the hunt for Raoul Moat. I'm not quite sure about that. As I say, there was a warning for every wrong piece of information. That's the backdrop to what I'm coming to. In a closed village hall, Sue Sim addressed the people in the room, but of course the global TV audience. She self-parodied, really, by announcing that the emergency exits were here, here and here, like an airline stewardess. And then a lady called Sue Pert started reading out cards that had been sent to Northumbria police, possibly David, etc. It was a colossal moment because having advised the press that for every wrong piece of information, the consequences would be. The card that was read out referred to Moat as a nutter. You could hear a penny drop. It looked untrained, it looked unprepared, it looked Crikey, amateur. It didn't really bother me that called him a nutter because he, he obviously was one. When you think from a police point of view, you'd wonder who in their right mind would actually read that out on live TV. Really? I mean, how foolish is that? If they're trying to control him in the press and, like, air to his warmer side, if you know what I mean, his reasonable side, and then they're letting a gaffer call him a nutter. There's a couple of things that I'd like to come out of it, um, and, and that's what I've already. Um, Did you know that? In regards Did you know to that? her standing up, uh, that lady standing up. Yeah, because he was on telly. Yeah. And what you, what what we've what we've mentioned is, yeah. I'm I'm actually or I'm in the hospital, and I, obviously, and David kept. Do you know what? I can hear him now saying, "He couldn't make this up," and. and you know what? The scary thing is, you don't have to. Because, you know what? Northumbria police. Pardon? It makes itself up, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Northumbria police. It makes aren't itself the up. Police. What, you know what they refer to? It, 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 it's not in the policy uh, manual. And they'll, they'll go to a policy manual. Policing isn't, about, uh, policing isn't straightforward. One one gunman isn't the same as another gunman. 
have a look in the United States. One will kill five, one will kill 35. The one that kills five shoots himself. The one that kills 35 wants to go to court. They know what can happen, but they refer to this policy. That decision, we couldn't make that decision, it's not in the policy. Hello, train and educate your senior officers to think outside a policy. Because, you know what, there's a word, fluid. That operation was fluid, unfortunately. I think Northumbria police were static. They had no idea. Yes, it's never happened before. Well, you know what, look back on the police policing history. Lots of police officers have been injured. Tony, they they were farcical. And you know what, if if they've not improved their policy manuals for their senior senior officers, there's every chance it could happen again. I have some sympathy in that this was unforeseen circumstances for Northumbria Police. I also have no sympathy because I'm sure that whether you're in the army, the police force, the fire brigade any emergency services you spend a colossal amount of time in training it is not accurate to say this is a one-off incident because we live in a global world where a school shooting in america is almost every day you can become immune to it and that immunity is dangerous because it then becomes a norm that you accept but whether it happens in Berkeley, or whether it happens in Baltimore, it happens. And my personal mantra for life is um, that we're all sharing this planet. So what affects people in another part of the world gives me knowledge and impacts on who I am. It is rare that this happened in the Northeast. I believe it's fair to say that Northumbria police were reactive. We know what we know about Moat while he's in prison. We know about the Chris Brown shooting and we know about moat ringing in to the control room i also believe that when it came to court their analysis and investigation was very good i think as a pr exercise they were a shambles an utter shambles hindsight of course is unfair but when you look back at it now, you would go, well, after that, something was bound to happen. The reality is that when you're in a place like Rothbury, there's going to be a conclusion. The fact that it actually lasted all week is probably quite surprising. But at some point, he's going to come out, or at some point, someone's going to go in. There aren't many roads in and out of that place. They knew he was there. It was coming to a conclusion. The drama of the moment suggests that what that officer read out set it all up. 
the reality of the situation is that that was just a really, really rubbish piece of public liaison. Let's face it, Tony. If you look at that um, incident at Rothbury, um, Northumbria Police at that particular time, they've got moat on the floor with a gun pointing at his temple. Um, they've still not got control of any of that uh, incident. They've got two other offenders that have been involved, not only in that uh, the first, second shooting, third shooting. They've also had armed robberies with their, like them and their, the two offenders. So they've got two offenders outstanding. They've got moat holding numerous firearms officers off uh, behind him who are now clearly on national TV and aware that everything they do is now part and parcel of a critical procedure for firearms. So if somebody discharges a firearm, they are getting everything closed down there and then etc. etc. Don't get chance to corroborate statements. Um, whereas normal policing, you can sit down with your colleagues and make any circumstances fit, and I've seen that done, um, to make the story um, what you need it to be. Um, they had no control. Um, Moat had, he knew what was going to happen, and the only saving grace, and I can tell you this for a fact, when the conclusion of that happened, David let out the biggest sigh, and then I said to him, what do you mean? He says, He's gone. He can't come and get me. So that's the first thing. Prior to that, if you recall, I said four firearms officers with open channel. They're obviously, they're all trained together. I know they had firearms officers from other uh, forces. We were told, and look, it might be bravado, ego. Moat was not coming out of there alive in any case. So one way or the other, what happened to him was by his own hand or somebody else. There's a detail here as well, which I think is worth inserting. And that is that we're now talking just about Moat. And we were talking about three of them, Ness and Awan, the accomplices. What was unavailable to the public at that time was that Ness and Awan had been arrested. And... They are the facilitators, you know, whether it be providing the weapon or providing the vehicle or going shopping for moat to buy tents and chicken wraps and TVs and things. Um, so in that period, to be fair to Neil Adamson, where he's referring to the net is closing, there are interviews going on with Ness and Awan. There were at least nine interviews with the accomplices. We'll come to that when we deal with the trial. So to balance their slowness and malcommunication and the fact that we think an old biddy rang it in, they did actually have some knowledge that wasn't shared. But you're absolutely right. It isolated itself into a situation at the end where it was Moat versus the police and there was only one 
conclusion. And I'm sure I'm accurate in saying that by the time that card was read out, referring to Moat as a nutter, Moat is on his own. Um, and at that point, the end is clearly nigh. You cannot know how that will end because it could involve injury to police officers. It could involve, as David told me, an officer firing a weapon at Moat and therefore stood down from duties for a year while an investigation takes place. There are many, many people caught in the slipstream of this story. <coughs> I remember going to bed on that Friday night and thinking, crikey, please, will this end? And I woke up, and I didn't know David at this point, on that Saturday morning, so relieved. And I uttered the words that David uttered and so many people, I think, would have uttered. It's over. Do you know the thing is, Tony, right? As you said, the telly's on. We're, we're, we're watching this on Sky News, and it's night vision, the worst footage, and we're watching this in the hotel. Um, all this international, and this is happening, and this. And do you know what? They're filming that for hours and hours. And we're watching it thinking, what the bloody hell is going on here? Um, in the meantime, I think if if you recall, they're then learning how to use a non-approved home office firearm to assist them in bringing the siege to a conclusion. Now, what the what I want to explain is that the all forces across the England and Wales, Scotland, go through a process of sanctioning CS spray, handcuffs, batten materials. It goes through a rigorous process to allow them to use. Um, when you come to weapons that the police are authorised to carry and use, they are, again, they go through government policy. They even go through uh, applications in regards to testing. This device that they used um, wasn't wasn't sanctioned they shouldn't have used it you can see them test firing it on a what looks like a national park car park now as we've said that that the, the i think the bloke who worked for i think it was taser um was a retired a police inspector who was a responsible for uh, our operational safety we're referring to Peter Boatman, had a license to, or the police force, had a license to trial it in one area, which I believe was Yorkshire. My understanding is that he personally drove up to Northumberland in this week. Some grey areas, I believe, for convenience as to the final method of Moat's death. Tasers were certainly involved. Peter Boatman, who we don't know, is caught up in this because he, presumably with some sort of moral plane, that his taser, whilst licensed in one area, was not licensed in the area in which it ended somebody's life, despite that person being Moat. Peter went on to take his own life. Again, I think it's very important that we spend 
a moment to talk about this and it's very very sad and also forgive me but that's incompetence yeah and i think on behalf that, do you know of what Don't that. who's who said yeah, we can that, use that goes who said in, we can use this sort of in line with why we decided to have this conversation and, and bring out some of the facts that people don't know and, and, and the humour and uh, some of the things Northumbria Police did, etc., etc. And it, it's not about the roll moat story. This is about the story of numerous people who are impacted by a coward, uh, who sadly we know his name. Now, not only do sadly do we know his name, there are as we know, an element of population that revered this coward um, all over Facebook. We thought it was the best thing since last breath. And you know, the, one of the things that is quite uncomfortable to be part of is Northumbria Police played up to that um, storyline. They made, it's like Ned Kelly in Australia. And if the listeners want to, I'm sure there's numerous podca uh, podcasts about Ned Kelly. Um, he was a thief, a rustler, yeah. a dropout who murdered police officers. They yeah, they dress up and revere him. I'm the dandy you know highway because, man, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And he wasn't. He was, and do you know what? Roll a folk hero, was they a call coward, him, don't they? A murderer, a, a, a girlfriend beater, a domestic violent that we now revere, revere worse than drink drivers. Um, and Northumbria Police played their cards terrible. They made him out to be something that he wasn't. And you know what? We've all got to live with those mistakes. Mm. Every option they had to conclude this incident or certainly bring it to a quicker, safer, tidier conclusion, they missed. They missed the fact that they'd got the intel that he was going to get it done. Okay, let's blame resources. What do you expect us to do? Follow him, put him under surveillance. Well, you will with a drug dealer, so why not with somebody who's going to commit murder? So that could have been done, but it wasn't. Operationally, in the command room, put an order out. Well, we didn't. We didn't think we had to. What should we have said? Now, the litigation identifies that the police force has not got a duty of care towards their officers in regards to giving them all the information. Because policing comes first. Now, how ironic that when it suits them, that like OH&S, Health and Safety, when it suits them, doesn't affect um, police services in the UK, England and Wales, Scotland. And the Police Federation, having, I'm sure, read and looked at that judgment, have done nothing about the fact that police officers don't have to be told that they're up against somebody who's armed, dangerous, and has threatened to shoot them. Well, as we know, we awoke on that Saturday morning to find it was over. That's a considerable amount of time that one man has spent in hospital trying to find a new beginning. A new beginning that involves repair, recovery, mental health implications, and obviously disability. Next time 
will explore what happened to David's body and mind in that week. But I think it's safe to say when Moat is dead and people tell David it's over, it's only really just beginning. Next time on the Rathband Tapes. I lay in bed and I said, I said to myself, that's the last time you will ever, ever visit me. With thanks to series consultant Rob Jones, this is a Horny Media and Publishing Production.